Today on the Matt Wall Show, another police officer has been sent to prison for the death of George Floyd. This one never even touched Floyd. His crime was simply being in the vicinity when he died. We'll tell you about this case and the race-hustling activist judge who presided over it. Also, Mitch McConnell worries that impeaching Joe Biden might not be good for the country. The media celebrates as white people go extinct, and a new alleged miraculous drug uh, will make it possible for you to be a gluttonous slob and not lose weight at the same time. Is that actually miraculous? We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. Is that dark spot on your face still bothering you? What about the liver spots on your hands, neck, and chest? Well, they're bothering me, so get rid of them. And now you can watch them disappear safely and quickly in three quick minutes. Introducing the Genucel Dark Spot Corrector. They're a three-step, three-minute dark spot luxury system, which does exactly what it sounds like. By using their crystals microdermabrasion before the dark spot corrector and finishing with a touch of the collagen building Genucel 15, You'll see the dark spots disappear before your very eyes, instantly, smoothly, and luxuriously. But don't take my word for it. If you're not blown away with the results, you get 100% of your money back, no questions asked, free shipping and free returns. All three products are included in Genucel's most popular package for August, so you you get your uh, Genucel bags and puffiness serum also included for 70% off retail. So go to genucel.com slash Walsh, order the new dark spot treatment system today, and say goodbye to those pesky spots tomorrow. That's genucel.com slash Walsh. Peter Cahill is a judge in Minneapolis. He was appointed to the bench by Tim Pawlenty in 2007 and re-elected several times by voters. Cahill first gained national attention two years ago when he presided over the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin, who made the mistake of trying to restrain a violent felon named George Floyd, who was attacking police officers while overdosing on fentanyl and meth. After the trial in the fall of last year, Cahill delivered something called the Justice Jackson Lecture before a large audience of judges at the National Judicial College. As far as we can tell, no news organizations covered his remarks, but the clip is online, you can find it. And the lecture begins with Cahill playing, you know, sort of playing to the crowd, making jokes about uh, various parts of the Chauvin trial. It's very funny to him. Covers a variety of banal topics, including the importance of upgrading technology in courtrooms. But then as the lecture winds down, something remarkable happens. Cahill starts talking like a BLM activist. He drops all pretense of objectivity. It's almost as if he forgets he's a judge. I want you to watch as Cahill explains to the room full of judges that actually every single case they hear should be, quote, about racial justice. It doesn't mean that uh, we ignore racial justice. Every case that you deal with should be about racial justice. Even if everybody in your courtroom, if you're white, old white guy like me, and everybody else in the courtroom is an old white guy, even the defendant on the speeding case, you still have to figure out, am I treating this person the same way I would somebody who is younger, different age, or uh, different ethnicity, different race? You have to constantly do that. So as what can you control? Well, number one, you can check your bias. How many have been through implied bias training? If you haven't, make sure you do it. It's very valuable. Uh, Check your bias. This is the off-bench stuff. If you have any opportunity you know, to help in the hiring process for court staff, uh, if you can serve on the Equal Justice Committee, if you can go out into the community, we've done listening sessions um, in some of the communities of color and just to listen, just to hear what their issues were with uh, the judiciary. And obviously you can't promise anything, but even hearing what their concerns were, was eye-opening. 
Every case should be about racial justice, Peter, Peter Cahill says. Work for equity. Take your implicit bias training. Hire people based on their skin color. Think about race all the time in all of your cases. That's what Peter Cahill wants. At one point in his lecture, Cahill says that the way to restore trust and confidence in the judiciary is, is through this method of always thinking about race. But of course, the opposite is true. When judges start talking like race hustlers, when they fixate on the skin color of people in their courtroom instead of, oh, I don't know, the law, then they destroy all trust and confidence in the legal system. It's disqualifying. Traffic court judges shouldn't act like this, much less famous judges handling murder trials. What Peter Cahill is saying is that if you're a defendant in his courtroom, it would help to be a member of a racial group that he thinks is oppressed. Otherwise, you might have some problems. You know, everybody's familiar with the image of Lady Justice holding the scales, right? What Cahill and his fellow activist judges apparently haven't noticed is that Lady Justice, in all of those images, is wearing a blindfold. Because the law is supposed to be impartial, unbiased, objective. It's not supposed to take things like race into account. You're not supposed to be thinking about that. But Cahill rejects this idea. He wants to throw away the blindfold and the scale, actually, and decide his cases based on his own subjective, ambiguous notion of racial justice. Now, this is not theoretical for this judge. It's how he runs his courtroom. Just a few years ago, Cahill dismissed charges against the organizers of a massive riot that shut down the Mall of America for hours. And why did he dismiss the charges? Well, Cahill claimed that the mall somehow approved of the riots. Nobody believed that reasoning, even at the time. And now it's clear that Cahill himself didn't believe it. He was just uh, working for equity and advancing racial justice. This is the mainstream position among judges in America, by the way. That's why Cahill wasn't forced off the stage by all the judges in the room during that lecture. They all agree with him. So do the voters in Minneapolis. They've just kept on electing this guy, and so he's kept on dispensing race-based justice. Following the conviction of Derek Chauvin, Cahill oversaw the cases of every other police officer who was involved in arresting George Floyd. That includes Thomas Lane and Alexander Kang, who helped uh, Chauvin restrain Floyd as he resisted arrest. Well, this week, Cahill sentenced yet another officer who was at the scene that day named Tu Tao. Tu Tao's case has not attracted nearly the attention that the Chauvin case did, but in many ways, the verdict and the sentence are even more egregious. Like, if you thought that the Chauvin verdict was a gross miscarriage of justice, then, then you should be especially outraged by the treatment of Tu Tao, an officer who never even laid a hand on George Floyd. Chauvin should not have spent a day in jail. Tao shouldn't have even been under investigation, let alone arrested and convicted and sent to prison. Tu Tao's crime was being a police officer in the vicinity of George Floyd's fatal overdose. That's it. All he did was hold back the crowd as they became more agitated. You've probably seen the footage. I'm sure you have, but here it is. Doing okay. You call. You call what you do. You call what he doing okay, bro. Are you really in firefighters? Yes, I am from Minneapolis. Bro, you 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 call. You think that's okay? Check his pulse. Check his right now. His pulse. Get back in the check. The man ain't moved yet, bro. The man ain't moved yet, bro. Where, where? Minneapolis. Okay. Bro, okay. bro, okay. bro, you're a bum, bro. You're a bum, bro. You're definitely a bum, bro. So the crowd gets angrier as the uh, video goes on. At trial, prosecutors argued that instead of waiting for EMS, Tao should have somehow checked that woman's credentials and determined that she was a firefighter and then let her save George Floyd. In other words, their theory of the case is that Tao should not have done his job. You know, if he hadn't done crowd control, they said, George Floyd might have been saved, which is preposterous. 
If Tao had not held back the crowd, then there would have been more violence. That is violence aside from George Floyd fighting with the police officers. There's no question about that. During Derek Chauvin's trial, a park police officer who was at the scene testified that the crowd was becoming aggressive to the point that he was worried about the officer's safety. Watch. And as uh, Mr. Floyd and the officers were across the street, did you notice any uh, changes in the area? Uh, yeah, as the, the, there was a crowd. And uh, yes, the crowd was becoming more loud and aggressive. A lot of yelling across the street. Did that cause you any concern? Uh, concern for the officer's safety, yes. Did you go over to try to help them? Uh, no, because I asked my job was to watch the car and the two individuals that were by the car. Now, in terms of as the crowd or the group of people were uh, uh, congregating around Squad 320, did you notice anything in terms of the tone or tenor of the voices of those people? They were uh, very aggressive. Yes, aggressive towards the officers, yes. Did the, did the volume increase? Uh, yes. Okay. And so how, how were you reacting? How were you splitting? How were you reacting to that? Uh, yes, I was uh, focused on car, but then it distracts me, and I was concerned for the officer's safety, too, so I just kept an eye on his officers and the car and the individuals, okay. passengers. So that testimony, in addition to the video, makes it clear that Tao's focus on the crowd was reasonable. It was reasonable for Tao to pay attention to the crowd instead of George Floyd's vital signs. You know, he didn't have any drugs on him to help reverse the effects of Floyd's overdose anyway. So he did his job, which was keeping an angry mob away from the other officers who were handling Floyd's arrest. What else was he supposed to do? You know, they're in the middle of, from Tao's perspective, which is the correct perspective, they're in the middle of arresting a suspect is he supposed to just let the crowd... There you go. Uh, get as close as you like. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, so go ahead. De descend on these other officers who are in the middle of uh, conducting an arrest. Is that what he was supposed to do? If he had done that, and then that led to more violence, and someone had gotten hurt, then he'd be in trouble for that. And in that case, probably rightly so. So, of course, we know that this is the way it goes. The moment that, um, that, that this man and all the other officers, the moment that they arrived on the scene... That day, they were in a lose-lose situation. No matter what happens, they lose. So why did both the state and federal government charge Tutau? At his trial, the prosecution suggested that uh, suggested what some of their, their own possible motives might have been. They repeatedly criticized Tao for telling the mob, don't do drugs. And that line in particular really upset politicians in Minneapolis. After all, you know, these were the same politicians who deliberately hid body cam footage of George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, multiple times while he was in the backseat of a police car, long before Chauvin's knee was anywhere near his neck. You remember that? You know, until, the, uh, until that footage was leaked to the Daily Mail, nobody saw it because officials in Minnesota realized that it destroyed their whole narrative. So maybe that's why they charged Tutau. He pointed out something forbidden, which is that Floyd killed himself by taking enough fentanyl to kill a horse. Or maybe Tutau had to be punished simply because he's a police officer and powerful forces in this country want to dismantle police departments at every opportunity. Throwing a cop in jail for doing his job, as Tao was, would certainly help accomplish that objective. That could be why Peter Cahill convicted Tao in a bench trial. Perhaps he wanted to advance racial equity by discouraging any sane person from ever joining the police department ever again. There's probably a lot of truth to both of those explanations, but Tao's greatest sin became obvious at his sentencing hearing this week. 
It's the sin that most enrages the totalitarians in power. He refused to bend the knee. He didn't cave to the mob. At no point did he say something he knew was false. Instead, at great personal cost, Tao stood there and quoted scripture and told the truth, which is that he committed no crime. He did not kill George Floyd. Watch what Tao said and how Peter Cahill responds. Watch. You know, 1 Kings 15 says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Luke 6, Jesus says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? John 8, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple. And finally, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Keep it. You know, God's looking for doers, not sayers. You know, James 4.17 said, If you know what is good and do not do it, to him it is a sin. Also, Scripture tells us that it is not good to go against your conscience. And despite what this court has ruled, I know we cannot hide our thoughts or intent from God. For we must give an account on the day we appear before God. Therefore, I must obey. But hold on to the truth that I did not commit these crimes. My conscience is clear. I will not be a Judas, nor join a mob in self-preservation, or betray my God, nor the true faithful countrymen who found this country under the fear and majesty of God. And Jesus reminds us who we should really truly fear. And this is what I learned. And, go, and for those under persecution. To be perfectly honest, after three years of reflection, I was hoping for a little more remorse, regret, acknowledgement of some responsibility, uh, and less preaching. Quote, I did not commit these crimes. My conscience is clear. I will not be a Judas, nor join a mob in self-preservation, or betray my God. Now, what you just heard and saw there is real heroism. That's true courage. This is not a man facing some Twitter mob, and we've seen how most people don't even have the guts to stand against that. But this man is facing years in prison. His life and freedom are on the line. And still, he chose not to grovel, not to confess to crimes he didn't commit, not to apologize for things he didn't do. Instead, he spoke about his love of Christ, and the value of truth. Now, watching that, you might be reminded of the end of the crucible when John Proctor refuses to sign the false confession and chooses to face the gallows instead, because that's the level of heroism. And if we lived in a sane society, there'd be a movie about Tu Tao and his courage in the face of political persecution. Of course, that's never going to happen. You don't have to imagine how infuriating Tao's words, words were to uh, worshipers of St. George Floyd. You can just look at how Judge Cahill reacted to it. Notice his slimy, smug little smirk as he tells the defendant that he wanted to hear less preaching, more false confession. Notice how utterly impressed with himself Cahill is. How much fun he's having as he throws an innocent man's life away. He can barely contain his glee. This is a, a Judge Cahill, truly evil man, and he barely bothers hiding it. 
Of course, uh, he doesn't mean it when he says that he wants to hear less preaching. In fact, Peter Cahill wants to hear the kind of preaching that he does in his spare time when he's talking to other judges. He wanted Tao to talk about racial justice and equity and affirmative action. He wanted Tao to speak in praise of the Messiah George Floyd, not Jesus Christ. And by the way, if Tao had done that, he probably would have cut his sentence in half. He might have gotten no prison time. If he had just debased himself in front of this, in front of this egomaniac judge. And I'm sure Tao knew that, but he didn't do it. He didn't go along with it. He didn't accept the prosecutor's hagiography of George Floyd. Instead, he honored God. And he said what everyone knows is true. And for that, Peter Cahill sentenced him to nearly five years in prison. Now, all the major news outlets wrote up pieces attacking Tao. The AP called him unrepentant. Of course he was. He has nothing to repent of. They said that he was rambling during the hearing. You know, they all know it was a show trial. They know that he didn't break any laws by holding back the crowd. He was doing his job. But they also know that uh, once they made George Floyd a saint, they had to punish anyone who blasphemed him. And Tao, during both his trial and his sentencing, blasphemed George Floyd. In Minnesota, that's the greatest crime imaginable. It's even worse than, say, raping children, which is not an overstatement, by the way. This year, prosecutors in the state ensured that a man who raped girls between the ages of four and nine, received a sentence of just 180 days in jail. That happened this year. Tutau got half a decade. Judges like Peter Cahill would probably call the sentence of that pedophile a win for racial justice based on the skin color of the suspect. This is the system of equity that's replaced the rule of law in this country for, for the most part without any resistance. Unlike the leaders of the supposed opposition party in Washington who march in BLM rallies and fall over themselves to commemorate Juneteenth, Tu Tao refused to regurgitate the lies that are the foundation of this godless and deadly movement. And for that, his conscience is indeed clear. Unfortunately, there aren't many people in power who can say the same. Now let's get to our five headlines. Start with a little bit of uh, political news. Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, report from the Daily Wire, cautioned against the regular use of impeachment process as House Republicans float an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. The top Republican lawmaker was quoted in the New York Times report published on Tuesday that explores how impeachment and censures have become the norm in Congress. McConnell said, impeachment ought to be rare. This is not good for the country. The GOP-led House may be headed toward initiating an impeachment inquiry against Biden, possibly as early as the fall spurred by concerns about a pattern of millions of dollars flowing from foreign nationals under suspicious circumstances. House Republicans have previously introduced articles of impeachment against Biden focused on other, other issues, including the border, though these efforts have not gained as much traction. But Senator, Senator McConnell is concerned about it. He's very concerned, and it's, not, um, it's a dangerous thing. It shouldn't be the norm. We have to protect the norms. This is not the norm. You know, those blessed uh, and, and sacred and oh-so-important norms and, you know, he's right, by the way, that impeachment, right about one thing, which is that impeachment should be rare. And it was until the Democrats impeached Trump 46 times, right? Until they impeached him for forgetting to tie his shoes, until they impeached him for, like, uh, not zipping his fly or whatever. Until the, until the Democrats did that, it was a rare thing. It was, uh, it, this is an extraordinary step to take. And you would certainly rather not do it. Up until that point. But we don't, we don't live in that world anymore. 
We live in a different world. We live in a world where now it's not rare. That's the world we live in. Now, of course, Mitch McConnell uh, doesn't understand the world we live in because he's senile and only half conscious at this point, barely sentient. I mean, we saw him at a press conference. First of all, what is he doing back on the job? We saw him at a press conference last week, unable to speak. He's standing there zoned out and he can't speak. And they had to, they had to escort him away, shuffle him away because he couldn't speak. And he comes back a week later and it's like, oh yeah, what's, what was that all about? Ah, oh, it was nothing. You know, just a, a little minor brain fart is all. You know, that brain fart where we, we, we've all been through that. Where you just stand in front of a crowd and stare straight ahead and say nothing at all. That's, it, it barely even, it's like there are no follow-up questions about that because we all know, we understand that our whole country now is being run by geriatric vegetables. And so we just, it's like, okay, yeah, he's senile. There's just another one, throw him in the, on the pile. That's our whole country is being run by these people. Let, let, let's not change that at all. You know, let, let's have our next presidential election where two 80-year-old guys are running against each other. Let's, let's, yeah, it's, it's a good idea, America. Let's make sure we learn nothing at all. That's the best thing. Let's make the minimum age. Let's just at this point. Why don't we, why don't we raise the minimum age for uh, all, all, any of these national offices to uh, to seventy five? Make that the minimum age because like, that's all. Apparently, that's all we're interested in. We just want all of these positions being held by people who barely even know where they are. Anyway, what were we talking about? Impeachment. Yeah. So. Uh, the world we live in now is one where impeachment is no longer a rare, extraordinary step. And um, Republicans can either decide to acknowledge that reality and respond accordingly, or they can still they can live in a fantasy world. Mitch McConnell, again, being senile, uh, but also just being an establishment, um, uh, milquetoast establishment guy, he wants to live in the fantasy world. He wants, to, he wants to live in this world where, well, Republicans will respect the norms that don't exist anymore, and, uh, and Democrats will learn from that, and, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, remember how nice the Republicans were. We should do the same. We should, we should be the same. Now, of course, the, the corruption with the Biden administration is such that even if we still lived in a country where uh, impeachment was an extraordinary and rare step, he should still be impeached. Um, when you've got money pouring in from all of these foreign interests and all this kind of stuff, I mean, it's it's obviously this is a this calls for an investigation. This calls for impeachment. But again, that's not that's not even the country we live in. And we also know, you know if you have in your mind this idea that. Um, well, for the Democrats, Trump was a special case, and they, they're treating him this way. They wouldn't do this to anybody else. It's just they really, really hate Trump, and so that's why they do it, as if that makes it okay. No, they're setting the precedent for themselves. Do you think whoever the next Republican president is, whoever it is, do you really have any doubt that they're going to impeach that guy no matter what? Let's say the next Republican president was, is DeSantis. What if DeSantis gets in there? Are they going to revert back to pretending it's 20 years ago and treat him that way? Is the Democrat Party going to become the Democrat Party of 20 years ago all of a sudden? Um, no. 
Is there any doubt they would find a reason to impeach DeSantis right away? Look at what they're doing now to him. Every week they make up some new lie that, oh, he's got a curriculum that teaches that slavery is good. So that's what they're doing to him now when he's just the governor of Florida. You take that guy, put him in the White House, it's going to be the same thing. Any Republican, it's going to be the same thing. And I talk about the Democrat Party of 20 years ago like they were much better. But I mean, this, this has been the Democrat playbook since forever, actually. Like, it's, it's easy to forget that the Democrats tried to turn Mitt Romney into this misogynistic, sexist, barbarian, racist bigot. They tried to do that to him. So it doesn't matter who the Republican is. It's pretty clear. All right, The Hill has this report. Generation Z will be the last generation of Americans with a white majority, according to census data. The nation's so-called majority minority arrived with Generation Alpha, those born since 2010. Who, by the way, of course, get the best generation name. It's going to be many, many centuries until anyone gets to uh, have a generation name as good as that. It's really bad for the generation that comes after Generation Alpha. Uh, they, 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 get a, they get a raw deal in a lot of ways, but also given what their, their name is going to be. Anyway, barely two decades from now, around 2045, non-Hispanic white people will fall below half as a share of the overall U.S. population. Those conclusions and the numbers behind them seem simple enough, yet some scholars contend that the numbers are wrong or at least misleading and that the looming ascent of a majority-minority America is a myth. America's white majority and its number days is a lightning rod topic given the nation's history of slavery and enduring patterns of discrimination against minorities and immigrants. Uh, demographers and uh, economists celebrate the nation's growing diversity as vital to a prosperous future. Other voices vilify racial change as a threat to the nation's white heritage. So, you know, this very objective news report, those are the two options that they give you. So uh, you can either, when you look at the disappearance of white people, you can either uh, celebrate diversity and a prosperous future, so that's the one, so you're celebrating it, or you can vilify racial change. Those are the two options. There's no other, there's no other way of looking at it, according to The Hill and any other media report. Um, and so there are really two parts of the story. The first is the story itself, which is the demographic trend, where whites are trending towards extinction in the United States. Like, that's that's... That's the, way, that's the way it's headed. Um, and then the other part of the story is the veil of silence around this issue. Uh, the wall that is erected around it. And I know you're going to say, well, you just read a story about it, so it's not a silence. Um, yeah, they can report on it. So you report and you celebrate diversity and then you just move on. We don't talk about it. We don't think much about it. And that's it. You aren't allowed to talk much about it. You certainly, you certainly can't be concerned about it. You're not allowed to express any concern. That's, un that's unthinkable. To hear that uh, whites are uh, on their way to minority status and the white population is declining, the worst thing you could possibly do is, to talk about it at all is already a problem, but to, but to suggest that there's any reason at all to be concerned about that or, or to be anything less than thrilled by that development is, uh, is incredibly racist, we're told. 
So all you can do, I saw some someone, some libertarian, of course, reacting to this on Twitter just now, and uh, this news from the Hill, and uh, saying, "Oh, I, this is great. I don't see any problem with this. Who could possibly have a problem with it? Who cares if whites are going extinct in America? What difference does it make? I'm a libertarian. I don't understand anything. And that's the only attitude you're allowed to have. But here's what we know. Also, we know that it's it like it doesn't even need to be said, but I'll say it anyway because we all know that it's true. But We know that the continued existence of any other race of people is considered deeply important. And the preservation of the historical and traditional racial identity of any nation is considered deeply important. You know, so for example, if there was an influx of white immigration to a a historically black country, and that was resulting in a giant demographic shift wherein uh, it was becoming a predominantly white country rather than predominantly black, this will be considered a major, major problem. And there's no doubt about it. And yet, in the reverse, it is either neutral or, or cause for celebration. But really, it should be a cause for celebration. And you know what? This pertains even to the, the animal kingdom. I mean, you could think, think about if there's, a, if there's a particular type of, I don't know, hummingbird that's going extinct. Uh, even for that, we're supposed to panic. And if I were to say, hey, whatever, I mean, what does it matter? We, we, so, so we don't have that type of hummingbird. We've got plenty of other hummingbirds. What does it matter what type of hum, hummingbird it is? What difference does it make? So you got this type of hummingbird. Is, uh, is, there's more of that and there's less of this. Like, who cares? If I say that, I'm callous. Because, no, it's very important that we have all varieties of hummingbirds. Every variety is very, very important. We have to keep them all around. Every part, every animal in the animal kingdom, we've got to keep them all around. It's extremely important. If any particular variety starts to dwindle, uh, if any particular type of uh, species of animal gets driven out of its uh, territory, it's a very bad thing. So it's interesting that we can see this with hummingbirds, but not with certain kinds of people. Well, in particular, one kind of person, which would be a white person. Uh, The preservation of the hummingbird community is more important than the preservation of the white race. In fact, you can't even talk about the preservation of the white. Even saying that word, that phrase, is uh, it tantamount to being in the, the, the clan. Um, these are the standards that we are all supposed to live by, but they're, it's like we all know. It's just this game, and we all know that it's bogus and it's ridiculous. We all recognize it at this point, right? I'm not saying anything that anyone doesn't already know. They're all, when it comes to uh, white people and talking about any issue pertaining to white people, there's all kinds of rules that are put in place that do not apply anywhere else. And so it's really up for us, and we can complain about these rules. Usually what happens, and the typical conservative response has been uh, mostly to ignore the rules and just follow them and not point them out. Every once in a while, complain about them, but then sort of follow the rules anyway. We can do that, or we can just ignore the rules, which is what we ought to start doing. All right. Let's keep on uh, getting in trouble today. The Sun has this report. Scientists working on a fat loss pill um, that doesn't require dieting have made a major breakthrough in their research. Boffins at the University of Texas have been testing the... uh, game-changing drug called CPAC-C. So it's like CPAC with a C, C-P-A-C-C, that wards off 
weight gain on mice. Experts hope that it will be revolutionary in the fight against uh, obesity and it allows users to shed some pounds without altering their diet. In theory, people could scoff down as much junk food as they like without the fear of added health risks or not fitting into their genes. The Wonder Pill increases the body's metabolism to help it break down sugar and fats more efficiently. Now, of course, doesn't seem to be acknowledged in this um, article, but the health risks from scoffing down junk food, you know, gaining weight is only one of the health risks. It's not the only one. You know, if you're eating fast food all the time, there's just there's not enough nutrients in that. It's not the right kind of nutrients. And yeah, it'll make you fat. And so if you take a pill that doesn't make you fat anymore, then you're not going to be fat. But that doesn't magically make McDonald's healthy for you. Which means that this is obviously a bad thing, right? This isn't, this isn't good. Even if, even if it would have some positive impact on an individual level, okay, even if it would prevent individual people from having heart attacks and dying of obesity, because I would believe that you, you get a pill like this on the market, there are a certain number of people who without this pill would, would have obesity-related heart attacks, and now they won't because of the pill. And so you can make an argument that it, who knows what the number is, but it's like a certain number of people that after this pill goes to market, a certain number of people will, will continue living, whereas otherwise they wouldn't. And so we might say, well, that alone means that it's, uh, that it's good. What can we say about it? It's obviously good. And for everybody else, it makes your life easier and you feel better about yourself and you feel better about yourself when you look in the mirror and uh, you have a better self-image and everything else. So it's all positive. But it's not good overall on a cultural level, on a societal level, because it enables self-destructive behavior, which is bad for the soul. And it's bad for you as a person. And also, ultimately, self-defeating for your physical health. In ways that should be intuitively obvious, but we're not going to know all the specifics until they start getting these drugs. And they already have drugs like this, Ozempic, you know. It's not quite this miracle drug, but it's it's the, the closest thing to the miracle weight loss drug that's on the market right now. Lots of people are taking that. Um, but as always with these kinds of things, so if you're at all you know an intuitive person, and you hear about these these you hear about any miracle drug, you automatically know that well there's there's really actually no such thing as a miracle drug. There, it, it just doesn't exist. Miracles don't exist in the form of a pill. You can't do that. Um, there are shortcuts. There are things that make your life temporarily easier. There are things that make you feel better about yourself. But there's always a cost. That's the world we live in. That's, that's life. There's always a cost. There's no such thing as a cost-free uh, choice, especially not a cost-free drug. And intuitive people understand that. And so you already know that, well, no, this, there's going to be, it's, it's not all going to be roses here. There's going to be some problems that come from it. And if you're a little bit more intuitive, but not that much, you can start imagining what some of those uh, side effects are going to be. And one is that people are going to have terrible diets like they do now. They're, they're not going to get fat because of those diets. And so there's, there's not going to be that immediate incentive to change their diet. And so they won't change the diet, but they're still, they still have diets that don't have the nutrients that they need and that have all kinds of uh, chemicals and preservatives that aren't good for them. And they're still ingesting all of that stuff. And even if it doesn't make it fat, 
make them fat, it, it will still have a negative impact on their health in the end. And we don't even need to know what all the specifics of that are. With, you know, we, don't need to, we don't need to wait to find out. But we will find out because they're going to get these drugs out there and then they're going to be, it's going to have all kinds of horrible side effects and there's going to be a lot of suffering that comes with it. And then 10 years later, there's going to be all the studies that come out and, oh, it turns out this, that, and this. And in the meantime, aside from the physical ramifications, it just, again, it, it, it facilitates self-destructive behavior. It makes it easier for people to, to, uh, to be gluttonous and weak-willed. And that's not good. It's, it's for the same reason that miracle drugs that are meant to prevent STDs probably aren't a great thing for society either. Because they, again, exist to facilitate risky, self-destructive sexual behavior, which just means that you're going to get more of it. And while you have mitigated one of the consequences of having a society where everyone engages in this kind of behavior, you can't mitigate all of them. And for all the other consequences, now we're going to have more of those consequences because you've made it easier for people to do this. And you've made it more attractive. And that's not good. What's better is that Okay, you don't want to be obese? Just go and just do some, eat a salad. Okay, go for a jog. It's, actually, it's not that hard to not be obese. Um, you don't want to get STDs? Okay, well then don't run out and have sex with anyone you meet. Okay, meet a person, be in a monogamous relationship, get married, be faithful, you know, have fidelity to your spouse. You don't have to worry about this. Not something you have to worry about in that case. So that's one way. And it is much better to have a society where people do that, you know, where they get married and ha- they, they, that they're in monogamous marriages to avoid STDs and they go for jogs and they eat healthy to avoid obesity. Much better to have that, I would say. All right, here's a video from. TikTok that uh, went viral after Libs of TikTok posted it. It's almost hard to believe this is real, but it is real, and these people still exist in the world. Uh, Let's watch a little bit of this. I don't remember the last time I went to see a movie because I don't love going to the movie theater. But I'll tell you what, it pisses me off that I can't go see Barbie. I want to go see it, even if it is white feminism. I want to be able to go. So I'm doing a thing. And if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you can do a thing with me. Here's what it is. Next week, which is July 31st, August 1st, someday next week on a weekday, I am renting out a theater in Northwest Portland. The entire theater. The whole theater. Um, The theater seats 46 people, I think. We're only going to do 20 tickets. So me and 19 other people. That's it. Um, In addition to that, there will be one employee. So the entire building, the entire cinema, is going to be one employee plus 20 attendees. That's it. Um, we are the only people in the building, and every single person, including that employee, is going to be wearing an N95 the entire time. The employee's going to put it on before they enter the building. They've been chosen specifically for this purpose. They seem to get it. Um, if you show up because you bought a ticket, I need to see a KN94 well-fitted or a 95 well-fitted or a P100. And if I see a baggy mask, I'm going to tell you to take it off and put on one that I hand you. I'm holding onto a bunch of masks. Choose the one you like best. Um, 
there are no concessions during the movie. They're not even going to open it up. Do not bother bringing food or drinks. You may not take your mask off in the movie. If you need to scratch your nose or you need to take a sip of water, you need to get up, exit the theater, do that, and then come back. Um, they're going to be medically fragile people there. This is their first opportunity in like three and a half years, so we are not f***ing around here, folks. Um, no kids that can't wear a mask solidly for two hours. Like, I'm not going to do little kids because I don't blame them, but it is what it is. This is going to be a morning showing. We are the first people in the building, so we will be in and out well before any other employees or other people. Well, I mean, how can you turn down this invitation? This just sounds like a thrilling time at the movie theater. If you would like to get up early in the morning to go watch a two and a half hour movie about Barbie with a bunch of uh, lonely feminists who have not left their homes or apparently showered in three and a half years. And if you would like to be alone in this haunted theater uh, with, with, with these feminists, uh, eating no snacks, wearing a muzzle the entire time, and required to leave the theater in order to scratch your nose, if you'd like to do that, then uh, get in touch with this woman. I mean, it's a little late because I guess this already happened. So unfortunately, you missed out on that opportunity. But as she says, you know, you could do the same thing. Just sounds like actual hell. It is what it's what hell would be for me. This is what Satan is watching this and and uh, and getting getting all kinds of ideas. I think maybe Satan would actually be at the theater. You know, you never know. Um, you watch that. Uh, you know, I I watched that, and there was a part of me. Actually, I had to go to this woman's TikTok. I had to brave that. I had to, I had to make the perilous journey to her actual TikTok account. Because I, there's a part of me is like, there's no, this can't be real. People are actually still living this way. Everything about it, this has to be a parody. Even the throwaway lines about, even even though it is white feminism, it's like you're you're you can't be a real person. This is AI. This is not this. This is a joke. But what you realize is that no, there. Are, this is real. People really do live this way, and probably more uh, people live this way than than we would like to think. Um, in fact, there was another tweet yesterday with a similar theme from a person who also appears to be real. This person tweeted, relationship-ending argument with my partner of 17 years. She stopped wearing a mask today. Let me make my own decisions and stop trying to control me, she said, when I gave her the facts about the virus. I'm not trying to control. I'm trying to save everyone in this house. F everything. So this is someone who just, of course, he, he calls, uh, his, I don't know if it's his wife, He's been with a woman for 17 years and refers to her as my partner um, and broke off this romantic relationship of 17 years because she's not still wearing a mask three and a half years later. And presumably we're talking about in the house. So he's been wearing a mask in his home like all the time for three years. Another thing that when you first see that, you think, well, it's got to be a parody. There's no way. How is this possible? Um, but it is possible. And these people do exist because as we, we talked about all throughout COVID, you know, um, we learned a lot of things about human nature and about our leaders that run this country. And none of it was good. You know, I'm afraid to say. Like we, the COVID experience and the lockdowns and everything that happened, it didn't teach us anything good about human nature, about people, about this country, about our culture, about society, about our government. All of it was quite bad. 
Um, but I think the the kind of the underlying lesson is that for a lot of people, COVID was the first time in their lives that they had confronted their mortality. Um, and it's not because COVID posed for them this, this uh, grave risk that they weren't already facing. You know, as we know for a lot of people, it's like, you already have obesity. That's more likely to kill you. It's like you, you take, drive around your car every day and get in a car accident. But just COVID and the way that it was reported and the way that it was treated, all of that together, um, the hype around COVID meant that for a lot of these people, it was just the first time that they'd even thought about the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, I can, I can die. There, I could actually die of something. They were mortal the whole time before that. They just never, they really never thought about it. And because in, in the modern world, you're able to uh, live this very insulated life and we don't talk about death and we, 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 we keep death away from us. We shield ourselves from it. It's not like the old days when you, you know, you, if, if you got to adulthood, you would have seen people die around you. You're going to be around death. You, you're aware of it, right? Uh, you've got family members who are buried like on your property. And so there's no way to avoid it. But that's not the way we live in modern society. We're very insulated from the reality of death. And so for a lot of these people, the first time they'd ever even thought about it. And, uh, and it's for a certain percentage of those people, it broke them. That confrontation with mortality broke them, and they they haven't recovered, and they never will until they die, which which they will, and it's not going to be COVID; it'll be something else because it was always going to happen. So that's how you explain what you just saw there. Let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby game. If you're hiring, you know that it's incredibly hard to attract top talent, and with the current labor market conditions, even harder than ever. That's why you want a partner like the ZipRecruiter who gets it. ZipRecruiter knows how tough it is right now, but they figured out solutions for the problems you're facing. Try them for free at ZipRecruiter.com Walsh. To reach more of the right people, ZipRecruiter posts your job to 100-plus job sites. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds great matches for your job and then lets you invite the most qualified people to apply for your job. Their price is uh, really straightforward. You can stick to your budget with no surprises. Team up with a hiring partner like ZipRecruiter who understands what you need. Four to five employers who post to ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-A-L-S-H. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, a lot of people disagree with my take on the Neo situations. I'll read through some of those comments and then I'll respond at the end. So these are a sampling of the comments. Um, first comment says, he's not apologizing for apologizing. His publicist apologized for him. Lisa says, apparently his publisher tried to save him by apologizing for him. I'm happy he realized what was important and spoke his truth. Uh, another one, man, you can't make anybody happy in this day and age. During his video, he says he apologizes if people get offended because he doesn't mean to offend anybody. However, he stands by his opinion on the matter. You don't know what's going on between him and his publicist team. Maybe he thought they were going to do just that, apologize for offending people. But after his team, the team uh, post, uh, his team's post, he realized that they go against his beliefs, so he posts his video to stand up for himself. Come on now. At this time where things are so crazy, you can at least acknowledge the fact that this father of seven is going against the craziness for the sake of the children. Why can't we just be happy 
with, that someone with a platform and a fan base is at least being vocal and has common sense. Gosh. Uh, listen, having the courage to go against the LGBT call in today's political climate is commendable. Matt does this for a living, so it's easy for him to talk freely about his beliefs. Neo is a pop star. He has everything to lose for speaking his mind. Even if he apologized at the end of the day, he stood for what he believes in. I'm not a Christian, but Matt, it's my belief that Christians believe in forgiveness. Uh, Rosia says, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have to disagree, Matt, taking this series of events at face value. I'm proud of him and realize he's not selling a soul and accommodating to the cult, regardless of any backtracking here as publicists might have done. And then uh, getting it, getting to it says, yep, sorry, Matt. You're doing the same you accuse the LGBT mob of doing. You're saying his second amendment, or rather, second statement, you're saying his second statement is not up to your standards, and now you're bullying him. Not everything is going to uh, fire and humiliate, not everyone's going to fire and humiliate the publicist and say everything exactly to your liking. Okay, so uh, a few things here. First of all, yeah, it's true that I do this for a living. Um, I can't tell you, though, that even if you do it for a living, it doesn't mean you're not, it's a uh, as we just talked about, you're, I, I, we're all still mortal. And so when you've got thousands of people that wish death on you and, that, uh, and you've got, you know, a, a file like this thick of credible death threats against you, you know, it's, it's not like there's nothing on the line here. Let me put it that way. Um, and I actually don't think that, you know, being a pop star saying that, well, he's even more vulnerable and susceptible. Uh, no, he's not, actually. He's not. Um, not only because of the wealth and the fame already, but the truth is that, look, if you're a pop star and you're, and you're a singer and you put a good song out, people will, will listen to the song. It, it, like it actually doesn't. It, it's it's everything will be forgiven if you're if you're in that world, as long as you make good music. Now I don't know the last time Neo put out a hit song. Maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. I don't follow it. But um, if you're a pop star and you put out good music, and people like it. Then all will be forgiven. And that that really is the truth. So so actually, there's not that much on the line. That that's that's just the truth of it. Um, and on top of that, he's a grown man and a famous celebrity. I'm a grown man. I'm giving my take on what he said. I'm not bullying him. And I sincerely doubt that he would say that I'm bullying him. So relax about that. Second, he didn't stand his ground. He just didn't. If this is what we now call standing your ground, then we have lowered the standards so far that the standards don't exist anymore. Standing your ground doesn't mean anything anymore. If issuing an apology through your publicist is qualifies as standing your ground. Again, he never even claimed that the publicist put out that statement without his approval because, of course, the publicist didn't put it out without his approval. Like, I, I work with publicists. I, know, I think many of the commenters have no idea what goes on in this world. I could just tell you that they're not going to put a statement out without your approval. So he approved it. 100% he did. That's not standing your ground. Okay, we if putting out a publicist statement apologizing to the LGBT community for hurting their feelings, if that's standing your ground, then, well, I guess the good thing is, if that counts as standing your ground, then it's very easy to be heroic in that case. Like, if that's the standard, then all you got to do is just, if the bar is all the way down here, all you got to do is just, like, barely move your foot up, and you're a, a hero of historic proportions. And third, even in his follow-up statement, he apologizes again for offending people. That's not standing your ground either. But more importantly, he says that everyone should be able to do what they want with their own kids. Do you see how that's the exact position that the left has on this? Okay, this is what the left would say. A parent and child should make their own choice about transitioning the kid. That's what they say. Okay, so he, he has affirmed that view explicitly. 
This is not me being a purist. This is me understanding what our position is and recognizing that someone has taken a position that is the opposite of our position. But in the, in the meantime, thrown out a few buzzwords and phrases and whatever that are impressive to some people. and says, oh, he's on our side. Um, no, that's just not our view. And, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I just think that um, it, it's, it's, to me, this is more of this uh, peculiar conservative disease where we're so desperate for mainstream approval and relevance that any celebrity who comes anywhere within our vicinity, like ideologically, uh, just latch on to them. And we want to give them the, the Medal of Honor. And uh, I don't think that that has ever been an effective cultural strategy. I think it's pathetic. And you notice what the left does, okay? And it, it, we should not take cues from the left when it comes to their, their views, right, obviously. But some of their strategies we should. Because they're the ones who own the culture. They, they, won, the, you know, they won everything. Now we're trying to win it back. And so it, it behooves us to look at some of the ways they did that. And so when you look on the left, they, they don't do this. They, they don't, uh, if somebody says one thing that's like vaguely sort of we agree with, uh, that they agree with, that's not good enough for them. So they've got a hard line. This is, this is the line you got to walk. And if you don't, you're not on our side. Um, and then you look over at us and uh, we could have someone that's like, on one subject, 99% of what they say, we totally disagree with. But if you get that 1%, then not only do we embrace them, but we, uh, we hail them as heroes. I don't think it's an effective strategy. I don't think it's the right thing. I also don't think it's an effective strategy culturally. I think it's clearly not. Whether it's changing the definition of words or trying to convince you that 2 plus 2 actually equals 5, it sometimes feels like the current culture is doing its best to make you stupid. When wokeness is permeating every aspect of your life, it's hard to know where to turn for guidance. But I've got some good news. Our good friend Dennis Prager has all the answers in his Daily Wire Plus series, PragerU Master's Program. In Master's Program, Dennis Prager has gathered 40 years worth of wisdom and is sharing it on a number of wide-ranging subjects. Dennis Prager uh, offers uh, useful advice on marriage, happiness, and how to be a good person plus so much more. In a world that uh, wants to make you woke, Dennis Prager is on a mission to make you wise. All episodes are now available, but only for Daily Wire Plus members. So don't wait. Go to dailywire.com. Go to dailywireplus.com to become a member and watch PragerU Master's program today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, staying on the same theme here, we've only barely made it to Wednesday, and already this is shaping up to be a record-breaking week for groveling apologies. It's truly been a dominant performance by the spineless Lickspittle Club. The human jellyfish community has set a, a whole new standard for cowardice. Indeed, we've, we've seen everyone from R&B stars to NASCAR drivers bend the knee to the woke mob. Now an actress joins their ranks, Amanda Abington, best known for her role in whatever she was in recently deleted her Twitter account and posted a lengthy explanation and apology to her Instagram. What was her offense? Well, she said that 12-year-olds shouldn't perform drag for adults. Yes, Amanda simply suggested that children should not be cross-dressing and dancing sexually for adults. She merely came out against the flagrant sexual exploitation of children, and this provoked a backlash strong enough to send Amanda fleeing from Twitter, and eventually it led to, it led to this uh, rather rambling statement. Watch. Hello, it's Amanda Abington here. Um, I just wanted to quickly come on 
because um, apparently um, I'm trending on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I left voluntarily because um, I don't like it over there anymore. Um, but apparently I'm trending because people are gonna they're gonna boycott Strictly. And I think it's because of a tweet I made uh, back in March regarding a drag show. Um, now I need to make this very clear. I love drag. I think it's an amazing form of entertainment and um, I love drag queens. I think they're hilarious and brilliant and they have, it's an art form. Um, and uh, I think there's absolutely a place for it in the entertainment industry. Um, my son played Jamie and um, everyone's talking about Jamie and he was a wonderful drag queen. He was wonderful in it. Um, but my tweet back in March was regarding a 12 year old who was doing it in front of uh, adults and um, it just upset me because I saw a kid, a little kid, a 12 year old doing something very over sexualized and I didn't think it was right. Personally speaking, I don't think 12 year olds should be performing in drag shows. I did a stupid comment a few years ago. I can't even remember how long ago it was, but it was a while ago. Um, when I was ill-informed and I was, it was a stupid thing to write and I instantly regretted it and I apologised and I did my research and and um, I'm much more informed now. I'm not transphobic and I love women. <laughs> I, I think there's a place for everybody as long as we are aware of each other and we look after each other and we make sure that we don't go for each other in a hateful way. Um, so I'm sorry if uh, if my tweet about drag shows uh, made you feel like you can't watch Strictly. <laughs> um, I'm genuinely sorry. All right, so to use a phrase I hate, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, you should know that the very dumb and terrible comment she made a few years ago, the one that she says she has long since repented of and no longer stands by, was that women don't have penises. That's what she said. Uh, she said that uh, you can't identify as a woman if you have a penis. Now she says that that was a stupid statement. It was a youthful indiscretion. She was going through a rebellious teenage phase where she believed in biology and understood human anatomy. But she's grown out of that silliness now, and she wants you to know that. She says now that she's a supporter of the legitimate trans community. And by legitimate, I suppose she means these people, uh, that those people with penises who are actually legitimately women. What she doesn't mention is that this is a rather small community, and that is it's comprised of zero people in the history of the world. As for the rest, she, she rather meekly stands by her contention that little boys shouldn't be dressed up like girls and paraded around adult men for their sexual amusement. She isn't ready to give up that position just yet. She, she reasserts that belief here cautiously and with apology and qualification. Now, a few years from now, though, I'm sure that she'll disavow this bigoted viewpoint, too, and chalk it up to another stupid phase she went through. One day, she'll be slapping her forehead and saying, oh, man, I can't believe I used to think that the sexual exploitation of children was a bad thing. So stupid. But even today, she hastens to add that drag is beautiful and uh, wonderful, and it's an important art form. She cannot stress enough just how great drag queens are and how fierce and majestic and brilliant. This is another toll that she feels she must pay to the left. The one where she pretends to think that drag is a valid art form. Which is something that, of course, nobody really believes. Nobody could watch a bunch of men in clown makeup gyrating on stage and actually think to themselves, wow, this is so impressive. Everyone knows that it is, at a minimum, awkward and weird. But she makes this concession anyway in hopes that she'll be allowed to continue believing, at least, that the U.S. shouldn't have its own version of Afghanistan's Bakabazi. 
But the left will not give her that permission. As we have seen this week, and we just talked about, the left demands total and absolute acquiescence. And when it comes to the Alphabet Club, you may not criticize anything that any of them do. So why is it okay for 12-year-old boys to perform in drag for adults? Well, because some members of the Alphabet Club want them to. That's it. That's all the reason they can, they, that they can give, or as far as they're concerned, need to give. You either accept this, or you are a homophobic bigot. To which the correct response, of course, is, well, then I guess I'm a homophobic bigot. That's the appropriate attitude. But Amanda Abington certainly can't bring herself to adopt this approach. The idea of allowing people to call her a bigot and just being okay with it is unthinkable to her. She cannot, she cannot be viewed that way. She cannot accept it. And so she twists and turns and apologizes and equivocates while trying desperately to hold on to at least some shred of her common sense and moral values. She clings to one little scrap of it and shows up at the left's door on her knees pleading, please, can I come in? And they say, yes, but you need to ditch that little bit of sanity and decency that you still have in your hand there. I see it, and I can sneak that in here. So she pleads her case, and that's what's happening in the Instagram video. It's completely futile, not to mention rather unsightly and embarrassing. See, I harp on these kinds of cases because they provide a great learning opportunity for the rest of us. I'm often scolded for having such a black and white, all or nothing attitude when it comes to the culture war. You just heard some people scolding me about it, but uh, maybe you can see that, that I have this attitude because that's the kind of war we're in. We're fighting an opponent that demands unconditional surrender. There will be no negotiation, no compromise. I wouldn't be interested in it, if, even if one was potentially on the table, but it, it doesn't matter because it isn't. Amanda Abington's a perfect example. A few years ago, she, she took a strong and extremely rational stance. Men aren't women. Transgenderism is false. Don't castrate children. Don't dress boys up like girls and have them dance in drag shows. The left set to work to destroy her for, for daring to be a sane and normal person. And so she has spent the last many months gradually abandoning all of those positions in successive order in hopes of appeasing them. Now she retains only that last position in hopes that they'll be understanding and accepting of her. She hopes that you know, she, she hopes she can say to them, well, can, can I at least still have this? Will you at least have me th this, this one thing? Can I at least still think this? And they say, no, you got to give it all up. Every last shred of your integrity and moral sense, give it all. Nothing less than full, humiliating, self-debasing capitulation will be accepted. So, as we've talked about, you might as well hold every position, give nothing up, make no compromise, and surrender not an inch of land. It's, it, it's, if it's all or nothing, then give them nothing. At least that makes it easy, nothing really to think about. And while we're at it, here's the important point. We need to recapture a sense of moral indignation, of righteous anger. Okay, this is one of the great uh, uh, sins committed by the modern church, for example, and spent decades telling people, oh, you got to be nice, or the worst thing you'd ever be is angry. We must never be angry. And so conservatives and Christians generally have become just that, have become milquetoast and bland and accepting of everything, and we're not going to be angry about anything. You end up with someone like this woman sitting there on the Instagram video, stammering and nervous, like her rejection of child drag shows is somehow embarrassing, somehow a position that she must explain and justify. This attitude is not only pathetic and humiliating, but it sends exactly the wrong message. The more we allow the other side to pretend to be indignant and angry, 
Will we beg for their friendship and apologize for our alleged wrongdoings? The more it appears to the casual observer that they have the moral high ground, but that is not the case. We do. We are in the right. We have the high ground. They're the ones advocating for uh, things that are deranged and crazy and morally abominable. So we not only have the right to be pissed off, but it's also strategically important that we reclaim that ground. Amanda Abington should make a video saying, are you people kidding me? What the hell is wrong with you? Children obviously shouldn't be performing in drag shows, you freaks. If you disagree, then you're a degenerate scumbag. I have no respect for you. I don't care about your opinion. All of you people attacking me are filthy, depraved barbarians. Shame on all of you. You disgust me. Go back to hell, you demons. That's what she should say. Or words to that effect. Maybe tone it down just slightly, but not by much. The point is that we who oppose child sexual exploitation, we who stand on the side of basic reason, common sense, and science, we are 100% in the right. And the people who oppose us are not only wrong, but are deeply depraved and evil. And we should always make that clear in the way we deal with these issues. It's the honest way to deal with them. And also the smart way, strategically. But... Amanda Abington chose the cowardly and dumb way. And for that reason, she is today canceled. That'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed.